Welcome to the Future of Education, a show where we consider what our education system should look like in 20 years. I'm your host, Lee Elberson, and I ask you to join me on a journey to the future as experts from the Charlottesville community explore our education system through a variety of different lenses. My guest today is Dr. Frank Friedman, who has dedicated his career to providing post-education pathways and making post-secondary education accessible to everyone. Frank, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, Frank, I was hoping you could uh, give us a little bit of background. How did you get started in, in education and uh, who were some of your influences? Well, um, my degrees are in psychology, um, bachelor's, master's, and PhD. Um, that, that was my my focus, my discipline, my interest. And uh, during graduate school, I had the opportunity to do some teaching and realized that I, I really enjoyed it. And, and at least according to the students, I was pretty good at it. So I, I wanted to go into teaching. And after finishing up my PhD in psychology, um, I started applying for teaching positions. That's what I wanted to do. Excellent. Now, was there a, a point at which you uh, thought you wanted to work in community colleges specifically? No, that's that's a funny story. Um, I wanted to teach. And, you know, in higher education, there are those institutions that emphasize research, where the emphasis is on research and you do a little teaching. And then there are institutions that where the emphasis is on teaching and you do a little research. And then there are those that are 100% teaching. Um, I, I was not enamored with doing a lot of research, although I was trained as a researcher. I did a lot of research, published during graduate school, but my passion was for teaching. Um, as it turned out, 1977, the job market in higher ed wasn't very good. And the only offer I got right out of graduate school was at a community college. And to tell you the truth, I didn't really know what a community college was at the time. I went to the community college and it didn't take long for me to fall in love with the mission and philosophy of the institution. The, the community college combined my love of education, my belief in the power of education, and it combined that with a mission to not just educate the wealthy, not just educate the elite, but educate everybody for the benefit of those individuals, but also the benefit of society, that we will be a stronger nation, stronger communities, a stronger democracy, the more educated are our citizens. Community colleges are often called the people's college or democracy's college. And the, the institution I was at, um, Vincennes University Junior College, with it had a strange name, but it was a community college. Um, it really lived that mission of bringing education to the average person. And that coincided so well with my own personal beliefs about society, my personal interests, and combining that with education, I fell in love with it. And here we are 44 years later, and I've never left the community college. 
Wow, that is quite the quite the journey, Frank. Uh, thanks everyone for, for watching. Just as a reminder, your questions are definitely welcome. Frank and I are gonna save some time at the end to, to answer them. But first we're gonna dive into a historical review of education. So Frank, I'm curious, in your mind, uh, compared to 20 years ago, uh, what are some of the strides you've seen made in our education system? Well, again, I'm going to come from a, a, an emphasis or a focus mostly on community colleges and opening up access to education. Um, that, that's really my, my, my field, my specialty now, although I'll, I'll mix in some comments probably about other parts of higher education. But one, one of the key things, it, I'm going to go back a little bit more than 20 years. I'm going to go back into when I started at community colleges. First of all, community colleges were totally, um, they weren't understood at all back then. Um, we, we called ourselves the community college movement. You know, it's a movement to make change. What was the change? We had these radical ideas like everybody should have an opportunity to go to post-secondary education. And we meant everybody. You know, think back to the late 70s and back in those days, we still had an awful lot of colleges that weren't admitting women or weren't admitting people of color. Um, almost all students had to be full-time. There was no option for part-time and working adults. We actually believed in a thing called lifelong learning that you wouldn't just graduate from college, your education's over, you go to work, that's it. We believe that as the world changed, people were gonna to have to continue learning, lifelong learning. And, and we dedicated ourselves to that. These were radical ideas back then. They're no longer radical ideas. They're now mainstream ideas. And in my opinion, that's a major step forward for higher education in our nation, that those are now mainstream ideas. Combine that with, of course, the advent of technology. Um, technology has changed so much, you know, in, in all of our worlds, uh, no matter where you work, no matter how you live. And, and of course, the advent of the, the internet clearly changed everything. I mean, if you think back to how you lived your life, um, I guess for me, the, the internet really started taking hold in, let's see, I guess 93, 94, um, somewhere in there, 95. Um, you know, if you think back prior to that, if you're old enough to think back prior to that, um, the internet's changed everything we do. And, and it has changed higher ed dramatically. Um, teaching has changed. Certainly our administration our, our, of the institution has changed. So technology has had a, a huge impact on how we've changed. And then a topic I think we'll get into later, higher ed needs to be flexible and responsive to the workforce needs of our businesses, our employers, our communities. We need to have new majors. We need to have new programs. We need to keep up with those changes. And obviously with technology and changes in society the last 20 years, um, majors have changed a lot at, at colleges. 
so that that's kind of a an overview. Yeah, that's that's great, and there's there's a lot to unpack there, Frank. I'm curious um, uh, about one thing. So, in terms of of the the degree and the types of programs offered, what are some of the changes you've seen like there in, in since your time in working community colleges? How how much more quickly do we respond to the needs of the workforce than we did thir- like 20 or 30 years ago? Well. This is a distinction I'm going to make between community colleges and our university partners. Um, Community colleges really take pride in being more flexible, more responsive, and changing more rapidly. And from my observation, that's really true. Um, We, you know, again, we take the word community in our name very seriously. We are working with our local community. And part of that is to work with our local employers so that if a new employer comes into our community, um, one of the first things we do is reach out to that employer and ask them about their workforce needs, the kinds of skill sets they're looking for and the people they need to hire. And if, how can we create programs to bring them a pipeline of employees? who are ready to hit the ground running, or maybe they need a little more upskilling or training, but they're gonna meet the needs of that employer. Community colleges take great pride in doing that and then developing the programs quickly, getting them through all the bureaucratic approval processes and implementing. We also believe in our programs going away when they're no longer needed. The world changes. The type of program might not be needed anymore by an employer or any group of employers. And we need to jettison that program and move the resources from that program into another one that is needed. Community colleges must do that well to serve the community. Since universities are generally a little less tied to their local community, and they're playing on more of a a statewide basis or even a national basis or an international basis, um, they're generally a little bit slower to make those kinds of changes to their curriculum offerings. Yeah, great. Uh, Frank, you mentioned technology, and I think over the last year, I've certainly heard a lot of criticism about Zoom schooling and and, and what it does to, to students. What are some of the, the, the positive effects of, of things like virtual schooling and, and, and implementations of technology that have allowed you um, to provide more access? You know, it, it's a simple question, but there is no simple answer. I, I wish it was all, you know, one way or the other, but it's not. Um, I'll just talk about PVCC for a moment. Before the pandemic, about 25% of our courses were online every semester. So one out of four courses. Why? Because the students we serve are so often adults. They're, they're, they have a family. They're raising kids. Most of our students, about 80% of our students work at a job while they go to college. Um, I always use the expression, when I went to college, I was a full-time student. College was my life. Um, For most of our students, they fit college in around their life. And that's the reality of who we serve. 
for them, an online course, especially if it is asynchronous, meaning they can do the work at their convenience, that is just a blessing for that type of individual who can put the kids to bed, maybe, and then do his or her coursework or do it on the weekend or, you know, do it in between their shifts or at a job. Um, for that student, it's online learning makes learning accessible. And you have to have access first before you can enroll and learn. So why did we have one out of four courses on online to help students access the education they wanted? Now, during the pandemic, of course, we immediately put basically 100% of our courses online, as did our local school systems and you know, most educational institutions. For some students, that worked very, very well. For others, it did not. And this is where the answer gets complicated. Who did it work well for? Who did it not? In our estimation, it works best for someone who has a lot of self-discipline, who is organized and can be a self-starter, a self-motivated, um, and, and who manages their time well. That's not everybody. I mean, think about your own kids, think about your friends and neighbors, think about yourself. That might describe you, in which case online learning probably would be pretty good for you. On the other hand, the, the, the students who do not fit that description, online learning is not the best way. Then the second element I'd like to emphasize is it also depends on the type of course that is being offered and the type of material in the course. Um, in skill development, um, things like math, uh, things like um, computer science, um, information technology, online learning makes a lot of sense. It's discrete elements that you're learning um, and, and it's a transmission of information from whoever's delivering the course to the individual. But there are other courses that really require a great amount of interaction between faculty, students, and students with each other. Imagine taking a philosophy course that way. Now you can have discussions in Zoom, you can go into group sessions, but let's face it, it's just not the same as being there live face-to-face -face with your fellow students and your teacher. So the type of course is another variable that should enter into whether online learning makes sense or not. Um, I'm really pleased that when PVCC converted to online learning uh, on uh, March 15th, basically last year, um, in November of that year, we surveyed all of our students to find out how was it going. And I was really pleased on questions about the quality of their learning, the quality of their classes. We were getting 90% favorable marks. And actually that surprised me. I expected it to be lower than that. And I think that's a tribute to our faculty who did a really good job of very quickly pivoting and converting 
face-to-face classes to online classes. Yeah. Now, Frank, how much of that is like, what do you think that statistic is going to change to moving into the fall? It used to be before the pandemic, you said it was about 20 to 25%. What percentage is going to be virtual, you think, after? Starting yeah, that's a really good question. We've already announced that we are developing our fall schedule based on the assumption that we are going back to face-to-face learning. That we made the assumption that due to the, the vaccine rollout, um, we might still require masks. We, that's to, to be determined, but that social distancing will not be necessary. So we will be able to go back to live classes with 25 or 30 students in a classroom. Um, however, we will see an increase in online classes from 25%, I'm guessing maybe 30, 35% in the fall. And the reason for that is um, some faculty who had never taught that way before, well, they had to teach that way during the pandemic. And they found out it worked. They, they, they saw that their students liked it, that their students did well in their courses. There were advantages to it. Um, so I think some of the faculty who might not have ever done an online course before were now going to be converts. And I think we'll see an increase um, because of that in the fall. Yeah, great. Well, Frank, a few years ago, you uh, wrote an interesting op-ed titled, Is College Worth It?, where you mentioned uh, certainly the, the cost of, of, of college, but, but also the benefits. Can you walk me through the, the mental calculus that, that families go through when making this decision, especially in today's financial climate? I want to start by making a distinction, and it's a distinction that is often overlooked. When I say college, I mean post-secondary education. For a lot of people, when they think college, they think bachelor's degree. I don't. I think something post-high school. It could be a technical college. It could be a community college. You could be in programs that lead to industry certifications or um, certificate programs that last a semester or a year rather than a four-year bachelor's degree. So when, when I talk about college, think post-secondary, not bachelor's degree. And there are so many articles are written that just assume the word college means bachelor's degree. And that's a really bad assumption, in my opinion. So with that distinction, let me come back. When we look at the primary reason students give for going to post-secondary education today, it is to get a good job and make more money. Um, That's tracked in all sorts of surveys that are done. The leading one is out of UCLA and they've tracked it for gosh, 40, 50 years. And that, that percentage just keeps going up. More and more students are focused on getting a job and making money. So let's look at that aspect of it. The data is clear. On average, notice the words on average, a student who completes at least a certificate program, associate degree, and then on up, bachelor's degree, master's degree, et cetera, 
on average will earn a million dollars more than someone who never goes to post-secondary education. In their lifetime. In their lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's you know, if you work 40 years, um, that's uh, an increase of about $25,000 a year. Now, remember, that's averaging you know, over, you know, millions of people. Are there going to be people who only go through post-secondary who make a lot of money? Yeah, sure. Are there going to be people with bachelor's degrees or higher who aren't making much money? Yeah, sure. But the average is very clear. And that's why I say just looking at that variable, is it worth it? Of course it is. You know, even the most expensive education you can pay for isn't going to cost you a million dollars. And you're going to recoup that many times over, over the course of your life. But I think we also have to recognize that college is more than just preparing for a job. And again, the data on the benefits of college are quite strong. They're correlational rather than causal. So we must pause there. But the, the data is clear. Um, life expectancy. College graduates, um, I can't quote the exact numbers, but they have a much higher life expectancy than those who do not go on to post-secondary education. Um, surveys about satisfaction with your life. Um, all of those surveys, Gallup does that. My old alma mater, Purdue, is a leader in doing those kinds of surveys. Um, again, who it answers in a way that demonstrates the greatest happiness and satisfaction with their life. People go to college. Um, health, all the studies of uh, health, um, you know, uh, uh, life expectancy I already mentioned, but just general overall health. Uh, again, college educated surpassed non college educated. Um, lifestyle things, smoking which we know is bad for you, um, much more common of those who don't go on to college. So there are all these other benefits of college. Um, we tend to focus most on making money and getting a job, but there's more to college than that. And all of those measures add up to an advantage in life for those who do pursue post-secondary education. And I'm not saying that if you don't pursue post-secondary education, you're doomed, you're going to have a horrible life. No, I'm not saying that. These are averages, but they are real. Yeah. Wow. Again, Frank, e excellent answer and a lot to unpack there. And I'm glad you, you talked about more than just financial success, because I feel like in society, we associate success equals financial success without taking into account all the other factors. And I think, um, yeah, some of the studies have shown that going to college, you build your emotional intelligence, which is very helpful in, in jobs. But I guess I'm curious, do you think any of those factors are diminished when you deliver education purely over a virtual environment and not in person? I, I think that's a real concern. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're, we're social beings. Um, we, we learn from each other. We experience each other. Um, again, one of those non-financial benefits of college is at most colleges, you're going to be exposed to people different from yourself. They might be different in terms of religion. They might be different in terms of ethnicity, um, certainly background, wealth. 
Um, that's good to learn how to collaborate with people who are different from you, to learn to work in teams. That's something we hear from employers all the time, that whoever they employ, they're going to have to work with their coworkers. Nobody is just going to work in a little cubicle and never come out. Although I guess there are some jobs like that. But mostly you're going to work with other people. And if you can't get along with people who are different from you or who think differently from you, you're not going to be a good employee. So yes, I, I think one of the negative factors of a strictly online learning experience is that you miss out on these kinds of interactions and social development. Um, I am especially concerned about that, the younger the student. Um, and that's just me talking. I don't have any data on that. But I, I you know, for a 45-year-old who wants to learn cloud computing, they've got a whole lot of life behind them, a whole lot of socializing behind them. For them to learn cloud computing strictly online, I, I, I don't see too much risk there. But when you start with a six-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old and you say they're going to be 100% online, that concerns me because I think there is so much more to the learning than just the skills. Yeah, you got to learn reading, writing, and math, but let's face it, school prepares you for life. I'm not sure 100% online can prepare adequately in those in those areas. Now, that's 100% online. Can online be a component of education even in the primary grades? Yeah, definitely. Agreed 100%. Uh, Frank, another thing you mentioned is, you know, making the distinction between community college and in a university setting and uh you know, in the university setting, a lot of it is driven by by rankings. You know, I think you and I talked about this briefly before. U.S. News and World Reports issues this ranking of schools, top 20. And, you know, I think a, a, a lot of times it's like, I want to go to whatever the highest one up is without thinking about fit. How do you think that sort of ranking system affects the perception of community colleges? I, I'm not a big fan of the rankings, and we can get into why, um, but they're a reality. Our, our, our society loves rankings. I, I think ESPN started it with the top 10 plays of the day and in sports. And um, ever since then, we're ranking everything. Um, you know, rankings are only as good as the variables, the data that goes into the ranking. Um, and none of us ever look at that deep into those variables. Uh, we just take it, you know, oh, it's a reputable group. They did a ranking, it, you know, I'll accept what they say. But there are many rankings of higher education institutions. The most famous one, of course, is US News and World Report. Generally, that is based on prestige. And SAT scores and all these other metrics that, yes. they, that they acquire, right? But, but a lot of it is based on reputation. They gather data from others in higher ed and they ask about who has the best reputation. Um, 
a lot of it is based on just the incoming students. How smart are they? However you want to measure that, SAT scores or, or other measures. Now, now wait, just because you got smart students, does that mean you're a great college? Not in my book, but in U.S. News and World Report, yes. The smarter your students when they enter, the better your college is. Um, there are there are interesting tidbits in the data for U.S. News and World Report. For instance, the more students a university rejects, the higher their ranking. So if you look at a, a Harvard, you know, maybe they get 50,000 applications for, I don't know, a thousand, I'm just making the numbers up, for a thousand freshman slots. So they're turning down 49,000 people. To US News and World Report, that makes them a better college than someone who takes almost everybody. I flip that around. I think PVCC and community colleges are great institutions because we take everybody. We don't reject anybody. We take the most difficult cases of students with poor academic preparation or financial problems or a very complicated life. And we accept them and we say, we're gonna help them. We're gonna move them forward as best we can. I think that makes us great. Whereas in US News and World Report, that would make us the worst. Now notice US News and World Report does not rank community colleges. And part of that is because we are so different from the universities and it would require a whole different set of variables. There are, however, many organizations that do rank community colleges and they have their own set of variables on which they do it. Um, I am always very happy and proud when PVCC shows up on those rankings, but I must tell you and tell the public, um, although I'm happy and proud and I'm glad to put out a press release, I don't put much stock in it. Um, their set of variables are not my set of variables usually, but I am certainly proud um, niche. Um, I don't even know what niche does. Um, they just did a ranking of community colleges and we were number one in Virginia. That's wonderful. Uh, I'm happy. Um, you know, but do I really have total confidence in what they did? To be totally honest, no, I really don't. Um, quick aside, when I taught um, community college education for UVA in their, uh, in what was then the Curry School of Education, I taught it to graduate students. Their, their final exam was um, based on everything we've learned during this course, design a ranking system for community colleges. And? And that was fun. It was fun for me to read what they wrote because, um, again, to me, one of the most important measures of a community college is, are you meeting the needs of your community? And notice it's your community that matters. It's the people who live in Central Virginia, the businesses in Central Virginia, the boards of supervisors, the city councils. Those are the people who are in a position to say to me, how good is PVCC? Because we're here to meet their needs. And if we're meeting them, great. If we're not, we need to improve. 
Awesome. Well, Frank, it's time for us to put our future thinking caps on. We're going to think about 20 years in the future. So to you, what, what should, what would you like our education system to look like in 20 years? <laughs> you know, again, that, that, that's a, it's a tough one, obviously. Um, there are those who write books who say that, and, and they predict that the higher education system will be totally blown up and totally change. Um, you know, there were those who had predicted that by now, 2020, colleges would have gone away and everything would be online. It didn't happen. And, and there are those who write, in fact, I just read one report that came out this morning. Um, you know, everything's going to change, total upheaval. It'll never look the same. Um, I don't subscribe to that. Um, higher education changes very slowly. Uh, some would say glacially. Um, it, it, it's part of that is because of the difference between the way we operate and the way private sector businesses operate. Colleges, most colleges, engage in what's called shared governance. We share the governing of the institution with the faculty, with the staff, in some cases, even with the students. That's not abdicating my role of making decisions, but it means that before key decisions are made, we involve a much larger group of people than would a private sector business to look at the changes that are necessary. That slows things down tremendously. And the more people you involve in that kind of change, the more you're going to have incremental change rather than transformational change. So I think it's built into the DNA of higher education. And I'm not saying shared governance is bad. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just stating a fact. I think shared governance leads more to incremental change than transformational. And that's different from private sector where a small group of individuals can make um, you know, really transformational changes on a board of directors. So I see the changes happening incrementally. Um, I, I certainly see technology becoming more and more important every day. It, it can't help but be that way. Um, you know, even in tra quote traditional classrooms, um, technology is pervasive. Um, if, if you go into our classrooms right now, almost every classroom, well, every classroom is equipped with a console at the front where the teacher has their laptop computer. It's hooked into a projector. It, it, it's uh, many of our classrooms have um, video screens around the room for students to follow. Um, I, it's very rare anymore, even in quote traditional classrooms for a teacher just to stand up in front and talk. Technology is pervasive in how it's delivered. Um, the administration of the college depends totally on technology. Um, faculty use a learning management system. The one we use is called Canvas. Um, you, you can't just teach for us and have a little grade book. Everything's on technology. And that's great for students. The feedback to students is 
much more rapid than it ever used to be. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I think the use of technology will continue to expand. Um, we have a, a half million dollar project for next year that we just approved where we're converting uh, classrooms to another upgrade of technology in our classrooms. Each room costs about $25,000, $30,000 to upgrade the technology, to position our faculty to create the best quality they can. Um, also, as we look ahead 20 years, and I think this is critically important, we in higher education need to look at what I call the new economy majors. Um, think about what's happening in the job market in the world, over what's going to happen over the next 20 years. Um, we, we just saw President Biden yesterday at the Ford plant in Dearborn, Michigan, basically saying the future of cars is electric vehicles and Ford agreeing with him, not fighting it. Think of the jobs that's going to create the changes in manufacturing, the research that has to go into how do we create these electric vehicles? How do we store energy? How do we create, you know, that they can go more miles before a charge? And look at the charging stations we're gonna to have to put all over our nation. Who's gonna develop all those? Who's gonna hold down those jobs? We in higher education need to have programs that will create people prepared for that type of employment. Climate change, whether you believe in it or not, um, there's going to be huge changes, huge emphasis on alternative energy, moving away from fossil fuels. And that is going to open up the need for research. And then of course, implementation of all these new technologies and all, all the ways we're going to try to address climate change over the next 20 years. Um, I, I, the programs we need to develop, I call the new economy majors. That's where colleges, I think, really need to focus. Are we preparing employees for the future or are we employing them, uh, preparing them for the past? I hope we start moving more towards the future. Um, data analytics. Uh, I commend the University of Virginia. Their move to the College of Data Sciences was brilliant, and they are a leader in the pack. Data analytics is so hot and is going to drive almost every industry. I mean, it's, it, it's not an industry itself. It, it becomes like a support function in decision-making and leadership for almost every industry. But UVA is one of the few, I think, with a data science college. I think that's going to have to expand and, and grow. Um, so I, I think there are changes like that. Will it transform our universities and our colleges? Probably, in my opinion, no. But it will change them so that they are meeting the needs of our communities, our states, and our nation. At least I hope that's what happens. Yeah. Well, Frankie, I think you point out something very that that really struck me. And that's that, you know, the the university system is a centuries old institution. Yeah. And, and those institutions 
change slow by design, like you said. And, and this highlights the need for community colleges and nonprofit organizations to be nimble and, 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 and adapt to the needs of the, the, as you mentioned, the new economy majors. I'm curious. Well, Lee, yeah. just, to, just to comment on that, you know, I think we are clearly seeing our, our, our higher education system, especially the public system, uh, working collaboratively with our state government and with our economic development leaders at the state level. I mean, look at what's happening with Amazon in, in Northern Virginia. Um, you know, Virginia Tech to develop a billion dollar campus there. Um, programs are being funded by our state in cloud computing and, and uh, coding to prepare the large number of employees Amazon is going to need. They might not all have to live in Northern Virginia. They could be living in Bristol and the community college down there could be preparing these people. They could stay in their community, but work remotely. Um, we're seeing higher education work collaboratively with economic developers at the local level and the state level. And that's fairly recent when you think about it, but it is certainly going to grow in the future, I think. Yeah. You know, Frank, we talked a lot about uh, the the student body and and making sure that we are preparing them for the careers of the future. I've always thought that there is a disconnect between the current jobs needed and what students are going into to majors for. How do you, what, what is the role that educators should take in educating students in what's available and not trying to be dream crushers, right? Hey, I want to be a, a writer. I really want to be, I want to do this. I want to be a sports writer. How, how, like, what is our role there and, and how do we adapt to that? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, and I guess it happens at a fairly individualized level. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things we have to look at, and I think more and more school systems are looking at this, how do we expose young kids, you know, maybe, maybe middle school type age kids, how do we expose them to the types of jobs that are out there? You know, for, for many of us, we only knew certain jobs. Uh, you know, maybe it was what we saw on TV um, or, or if we had an older brother or sister or relatives who worked in a certain job, that's what we knew about. Um, but our exposure was very limited. Certainly mine was, just, just to be honest. It, it was very limited to what kinds of employment opportunities were out there. Um, and, and I'll just talk about my own education just briefly. Um, I remember taking calculus in high school and, you know, it was like, it was like doing the crossword puzzle. It, it was fun to solve the, the equations and I was very good at math. Um, but if you asked me, what would I ever do with it? I had no earthly idea. I didn't know what an engineer does. There's nobody, my, my parents didn't go to college. Nobody in my family was an engineer. I was never exposed to that kind of a, an, an individual or a job. So I, I could do math really well. What would I do with it? I had no idea. Um, so even though I was good at math, I went into psychology. 
My brother's a psychologist, my older brother, and that influenced me greatly. But coming back to the middle school, I think we as an educational system need to be looking at how do we expose younger students to the world of work? What's out there? What are the opportunities? What are the fields? Um, and it needs to start young. It, it needs to start with awareness, exposure. Um, we run a program here at PVCC along with, it's actually run through the community. We host it, we, we call it the tech tour. And we take kids, middle school, high school, and for a day, they, they start here, they do some, some um, experiments here, and then they go out into the technology uh, uh, employers in our community to learn about what they do. Um, it's those kinds of things that need to be built into our school systems, probably starting at middle school and working up. Um, we, at the community college level, you know, so many of our students come to us and what's their major going to be undecided. They, they don't know. Um, so we have a career counseling area um, and it's incumbent upon us to help students understand the world of work. What is out there? What are the options? What skill sets are needed? What education is needed to qualify for jobs and help them make good decisions? Um, we want to stretch them, but we also want them to be realistic. Um, if you're really weak in math, don't tell me you want to be an engineer. It probably isn't going to happen. We don't want to stifle your dreams, but we're also worried that somewhere along the line, you'll realize it isn't working and you'll call it quits and you won't have any benefit. So it, it's a difficult task. Um, but I think it's very important for our school systems to make this a part of their curriculum, not just, a, okay, this is the day you go out and you look at careers. It needs to be a more structured approach to um, making students aware of what's, what the possibilities are. Yeah, it's another um, great segment here. So, Frank, Wendy, so I think you, you point out something important. We want them to, to be not only aware, but also excited about the possibility of, of getting jobs in the future. When do you bring the financial lens into this, talking to them about like, hey, you can do this, but this field pays twice as much and you can do this with a technical degree. When, do those converse, when should those conversations happen? Probably around the same time. Um... You know, I, I, I think students need to get the full story on, you know, if you go into teaching or you go uh, to be a firefighter or a police officer, you know, what, what are the skills? What's the education necessary? What's the job like? What's the pay going to be like? What's advancement opportunities like? I, I think you really need a, a full picture. Um, you know, even, even at a young age, I think kids can digest all of that. Um, although, I mean, there's, there's also the fact that you're not locked into something for life. You know, just think of, as I mentioned a few minutes ago about lifelong learning, look at how many people switch careers, um, go back to school to pick up a degree in something totally different. Um, that didn't happen 50 years ago. You know, you, you went to work in a field for an employer and you might spend your whole life there. 
that's pretty rare anymore. And, and that's one of the changes that's happened in society, certainly during my lifetime in, in the world of work. Frank, in, in reading between the lines there, do you think that there's more value on a generalist than a specialist in today's economy? I, I'm not gonna say more or less, but what I am gonna say is a broader education is more valuable than a narrow education. Um, and what I mean by broader, in community colleges, we've used the term soft skills for years and years and years. What we mean by that are the general education skills, oral communication, written communication, critical thinking, problem solving, ability to work in teams, ability to collaborate with coworkers, um, punctuality, reliability, dependability. You don't have a course called that, but in a good educational program, those soft skills are threaded throughout the curriculum. You can't just take them for granted. You can't just ignore them. Uh, that's the real advantage of things like internships, practicums, clinical education in our health sciences. That's where you're exposed to the world of work and the business and that is probably the best way to emphasize those soft skills. But in some of our short-term programs, we do have modules on the soft skills. Um, we've used one from the University of Michigan for, for years that really focuses very directly on helping people develop those soft skills. Because I'm sure you hear it from employers, we do, um, you know, if, if they don't show up on time and if they're absent a lot or they don't care about turning their work in when there's a deadline, it doesn't matter how skilled they are. They're going to be a bad employee. Um, so those soft skills are very important. And also, uh, let me just say this. Many employers, especially when you look at um, Amazon or Google or Apple, um, there are many jobs they have that are for non-technical, generally educated people who have those soft skills, those communication skills, um, who, who can solve problems, think critically, but they don't have to be IT majors or computer science majors. There are many jobs within those very large employers for that kind of broadly, liberally educated individual who they might then train on certain very specific skills, but their big job is more utilizing their liberal education skills. Yeah. You know, Frank, I'm curious, um, in, in thinking about how we structure things in the future, what, what do you think, what changes should be made to the compensation structure for our educators? Well, I, this is one, it's going to sound very self-serving, of course, but I'm going to try to frame it in a way that it's not. Um, educators from K-12 through most of higher education are considerably underpaid compared to jobs that require a similar amount of education out in uh, the world of work in the private sector. Yep. And I, this, this is a belief of mine. Um, 
if you look at jobs that 50 years ago, 60 years ago, were what we would call, well, we shouldn't call, but were called women's jobs. Those are the ones that are the most underpaid. Nurses, administrative assistants, teachers. 60 years ago, those jobs were almost always filled by a woman. And because of that, they paid much less than other jobs. And even though that is no longer the case, although they might be majority women, but more and more men are going into those jobs, those jobs still lag behind. They have changed slowly in terms of increasing salaries. Well, that's my personal belief on this. Um, and that has held down teacher salaries tremendously. Um, but now the opportunity for women has greatly increased. They don't have to go into those three occupations. They, they can be you know, in, in any other field that they want. And many of those other fields pay a heck of a lot more. Yeah. And therefore, we're seeing more and more women who are very talented, very capable, who 50 years ago would have either been a nurse or a teacher. Today, they're in IT. They're an engineer. They're a lawyer. They're a doctor. So we're losing those really, really capable, talented women who years ago were teachers. Now they're not. And, and I'm not trying to belittle teachers. Many of them still are. But if we want to attract those top performers to be teachers, we got to raise the salary. It, 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 you know, for a top performing woman who's very capable in math and science, and she looks at, yeah, I can be a math teacher in high school and make forty-five dollars or $50,000 a year with my master's degree or with my bachelor's degree. I don't even need a master's degree. I can go work in the private sector and make double that. Yeah. That's the reality. Now, to, to change that is going to take a monumental shift in how governments spend money because most teachers are paid by the government, whether it's state or local. Um, and, and that becomes a huge ticket in, in their budget. So it's very difficult to change. But um, I, I think... I think it would be, let, let me put it this way. Um, if the starting salary tomorrow for a K-12 teacher was $100,000, I think we would attract a whole different group of folks um, to go into teaching who would just be outstanding. Um, not that they're only interested in money, but the money would help attract them and compete with other areas of work. And I am of the firm belief the number one variable in the quality of education is the quality of the teacher. Whether it's kindergarten, eighth grade, community college, university, the quality of the education a student gets is number one variable, not the only variable, but number one based on the quality of the teacher. It's certainly not the president of the college. And, and that means the better the teacher, the better the educational quality. 
Agreed. And let me again say, I am not saying our current teachers are inadequate. I'm not saying they're doing a bad job. I'm not saying anything negative about them. I'm just saying that we're missing out on others who could be added to our teaching pool who would be exceptional. Absolutely. Yeah. And they would be, yeah, and you can retain them, right? It's not just adding new talent to pool. It's retaining them before they get burnt out and go somewhere else. So yeah, the, the statistics on how many teachers leave within the first, what, three to five years, it's alarming. Um, and, and they leave for many different reasons. Um, money might only be one of them, but yeah, it, you know, that, that is clearly a problem in our entire educational system. Yeah. Well, Frank, another question that, that, that I think about in terms of, of what happens in the future, currently the way our systems are structured is you generally are going to go to a community college. You're going to stay there for two years. You're, you're going to go to a four-year college. You're going to stay there for four years. Is there a future that exists in which there's a lot more collaboration amongst institutions and you can handpick what you do amongst these various institutions? Yeah, I, I think this is one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you had asked about the changes over the last 20 years. This is one I did not mention. We call it swirling. Um, students attending multiple colleges. They, and, and not in a linear fashion. So they might start at a university and for whatever reason, it doesn't work out real well. Then they go home and they go to their local community college. Um, and, and maybe after that, they go back to the university or maybe they go back to a different university or you know they, they swirl around in their higher education. And um, th this has become very prominent over the last 20 years. And I, I don't have the statistics, but um, the number of students who when they get their degree have actually had credits at multiple institutions is huge. Um, I, I mean, like 40, 50, 60% have not just attended one institution straight through, they've been at multiple institutions. So that, that's a very important element of what has changed in higher education. Um, is that, just real quick, Frank, is that seen as a benefit when you're looking at a, a transcript that they bounced around a lot? No, not really. Um, the challenge here is that most educational systems are state systems. You know, we, we don't have a federal system of higher education. We have 50 state systems. And some state systems do a better job than others at ensuring that the student who swirls around and gets credit at multiple places, that those credits are recognized by the other institutions. Some states do that better than others with law or regulation or a, a, um, a head of a higher education system that requires that. And that's especially important for community colleges. Um, about 60% of our students at Piedmont Virginia Community College are using us for the first year or two towards a bachelor's degree. 
their goal is the bachelor's degree. They come to us for convenience, for low cost, for the programs they want, and hopefully because we have a good image for quality. But their goal is to transfer. When they transfer, let's say they've gone all the way through our associate degree, that means they have 60 credits. Most bachelor's degrees require 120 credits. When they transfer, they should only need 60 more. All 60 that they got from us should count towards the bachelor's degree as long as they took the right courses in sequence. And that, that's a function of advising from us. I wish it was that perfect and I wish it worked that way all the time. Um, in some states it does. In other states, sometimes yes, sometimes no. In some states, it will depend to which university they transfer. Um, that a particular community college might have a really good relationship with a local university and those credits transfer all the time. But if they went to a university in a different part of the state, they might not have that same agreement. In some states, the agreements are statewide. So we have a mixed bag throughout the country. And this is something, if I could snap my fingers and, and make happen, I would want to see every state have very clear, easily defined transferability of credits from one institution to another. And I think that's, that would be in the best interest of our students um, because if they have to repeat courses they've already taken, you're talking time and money. Why add time and money to the cost of a higher education unless, unless you have to? And breaking that barrier of time and money is what I think state agencies like the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia, uh, the University System of Georgia, uh, places like that, that should be one of their focuses, one of their real missions to ensure that easy credit transfer and easy movement of students from un one institution to another without losing time and money. Excellent. Well, we do have some viewer questions, but before we do that, I, I have a, a question I've been curious about. Uh, Frank, do you feel like community colleges and, and maybe specifically PVCC is underutilized when you look at enrollment numbers? It's difficult to say. Um, you know, the reason community colleges exist, the number one reason is to make post-secondary education accessible. That's the number one reason. The, the 60s were the heyday for community colleges. Um, literally, in, in some years in the 1960s, 300 community colleges opened in a given year. And if you look at it, it was at the time in our society of the civil rights movement, of feminism, the growth of opportunity for people who had been excluded from opportunity throughout the history of our country, people of color, people of low income, community colleges grew up in that time period as a reaction to the expansion of opportunity in our society. And the, the key is that 
we need to be there for anyone who can benefit. And we need to convince people that education is beneficial, that it is the key, at least I believe, to a better life, that there is value, that it is worth it. And maybe nobody in your family has ever been to college. Maybe you're the, the first in your family, but that shouldn't stop you. We want you here. We will help you here. There, there is great benefit here. And that's a message we try to get out as best we can. We can always do better at getting that message out. And certainly there are people out there who can benefit, but they just don't see it happening to them. One of the reasons is that even though community colleges are the lowest cost form of higher education, it still costs money. And for many people, we're, they don't think we're affordable. Um, that's why we are launching at PVCC a financial aid program starting next fall that basically says if you make less than $100,000 a year, your tuition and fees will be covered 100% by our financial wow. aid program. Now, we're, we're only offering that for one year because we're using federal money that has come through all those stimulus dollars that mm -hmm. we read about that Congress has approved. Well, we could spend that money in many different ways. We decided to spend it on scholarships, financial aid for students. Brilliant. And we can do it for a year, but then the money will run out. And we'll look at, can we raise the money in other ways to keep that going? But we're hoping that if we eliminate the affordability barrier, that there are people out there in our community who are sitting there going, well, I couldn't pay a couple thousand bucks to go to PVCC, but now I don't have to pay anything. All right, I'm going to give it a try. And that's what we hope will happen. That's, that's excellent, Frank. Uh, okay, a couple of viewer questions. Uh, one is a, a parent... She says that uh, her student was a few years ago prepared to go to a four-year college, but COVID really sort of rattled um, her, her son's determination and motivation. And she's wondering if a two, like, should he just wait and take a gap year or should he go into a two-year community college before going into a four-year I know it's tough to say with limited information. Yeah, but. yeah you know, not knowing the, the student, not knowing the family, it, it would be very difficult for me to give any valid advice. Um, a couple of things to think about, let's put it that way. Um, if the student takes a gap year, how likely is the student to return to, to higher education? Too many individuals take that gap year and then never, never pursue higher ed. Uh, they get off in other directions. Um, so I think, you know, a, a discussion about that is, is a worthy discussion. Um, when I look at, I get questions all the time from parents and uh, of high school students, and I do a lot of speaking to, to groups of parents. The most important thing when looking at a young person going to college, I think is fit. How will that student fit into the college? How does the college fit with that student's needs, issues, background? Um, 
there are loads of students who should not come to PVCC. There are students coming out of high school who are exceptionally well-prepared academically, highly motivated, family is financially secure, and the student is um, socially and emotionally very mature. If they get an opportunity to go to an elite selective college or university, go. If you can afford it, you're academically prepared, you're mature, you're ready to live away from your family in a dormitory or apartment, do it. The fit is good. But if you're deficient in any one of those areas, academics, motivation, money, maturity, a community college is a wonderful choice. Now, it can be a great choice even if you do have all those characteristics. But for anybody lacking any one of those, the community college can be a tremendous fit and a tremendous jumping off point. And, um, you know, the, the Washington Post just ran uh, last Sunday uh, on their op-ed page, um, a whole series of testimonials from people who had gone to community colleges and it had turned around their life. It, it was really, I mean, it, for me, it was just wonderful to read. Um, and they from from all over the country. And it was stories of, of what they were like and how the community college changed them and where they were now in their life. And, and they were just testimonials. That's what we're all about. So I think in dealing with that youngster, um, these are conversations to have. These are things that the parents should be looking at honestly and objectively. I mean, we all want to look at our kids like they're perfect, but they're not. Um, what are their strengths and weaknesses? And what are the family's strengths and weaknesses? And I, I think those are things that enter into that decision. Great. Well, thanks for taking something uh, that is very nuanced and, and boiling it down for us. All right. We only have time for one more question. Uh, this one, I think I actually recognize this person. Uh, he says that he's always loved education and, and, and looking for the next step and, and is curious about what, what is the profile of a teacher at PVCC and, and, and what does a career look like at PVCC? Okay. Um, in most of our disciplines, um, an individual must have a master's degree in that discipline or a master's degree in any field, but 18 graduate semester hours in the teaching discipline. So in other words, if you want to teach history for us, you have to have at least a master's degree in history although you can also qualify by having a master's degree in education, but at least 18 graduate semester hours in history. The reason for that is we expect you to be an expert in the field you're teaching. So you better have a background in history to teach history. Um, the preference is for a doctorate, but that's not a requirement. The master's is the requirement. Now, in fields that are designed to get the student into the workforce immediately, rather than to go on for a bachelor's degree, you do not need that master's degree to teach. So in fields, um, well, like we offer welding, um, it's the um, 
the bachelor's degree that will open up an opportunity there for you. So we make the distinction between those that are designed to feed into a bachelor's degree and those programs that are not. And the teaching requirement for those that are not geared towards the bachelor's degree is a little bit less in terms of the credential um, than, than the other fields. All of that is set by our accrediting agency. Um, we're accredited by the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools Commission on Colleges. It's the same agency that accredits UVA and 800 colleges and universities in the South. And we all have that same standard. And it's a way of assuring each other that our students are being taught by well-qualified people. Awesome. Well, Frank, thank you so much. Uh, we don't have time for any more questions, but there was a lot of kudos and, and, and thanks for the uh, free year of tuition that PVCSC <laughs> is offering next year. Frank, if people are interested, how do they find out more about that program? Um, all they need to do is open up our website, okay. www.pvcc.edu. And the very first thing they're going to see is how to, you know, what to click on to pursue that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for everybody uh, watching. Watching, uh, If you're listening to this later, this is going to be available on uh, Facebook, Spotify, Google, iTunes. And if you have any questions for Frank, leave them on those platforms and I'll make sure to relay to them, relay them to him. Um, if somebody wanted to contact you, Frank, would they be able to do that? Yeah, sure. Um, my email is uh, f. Friedman, my last name, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, at pvcc.edu. Okay. Um, sure. I welcome, you know, just go ahead and email me. I'll be glad to try to answer to the best of my ability. Um, that That's one of the things I do all the time. Great. And I'll make sure to include that in the description of the, the podcast. So, Franks, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been an honor. It's been a lot of fun. And, uh, I'm so glad you do this. Um, I, I, I hope a lot of people take advantage of it. Uh, not, not to hear me, but to, just to hear more about education. Yeah. Well, from both Frank and I, we encourage everybody to stay positive, keep reaching out for help. And remember, we're all in this together. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode. Please listen to our other episodes to gain further insight into the future of education.